Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi there, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Bum, bum, bum. I am committed to never using a weird voice because you vary your... I like to mix it up a little bit, and I think I think very serious trailer voice. They were two wretches. They had a podcast. The world was against them, and yet they persisted. Yeah, we still haven't gotten a sponsorship from those cookies. What were they called? Last Crumb Bakery. Last Crumb. Oh. Well, the rate oh. at the rates they're charging, I'd say they can afford it. Yes. Of course, the the packaging for the Last Crumb cookies costs. Well more than the cookies really? do. Oh, I what mean, does it look like? I didn't it, see it. It looks like when I get a suit, when I have a suit made and sent to me, it comes in that kind of a big, like 10-pound, heavy-duty fashion box. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They were. It's, it's real. But I, I like that you're out there. And by the way, Last Crumb, feel free just to send Eliana a box of cookies yes. if you want. Just instead, if you don't want to sponsor, we can keep the conversation alive right here. That is, you could throw me a lifeline. That's right. Cookies. That's right. Chris, I just want to note, Chris came in here today and said, oh, for once, we actually was, do no, have a that's stacked not what front I said. page. I sp- a stacked front I page. I spoke with self-reference. Yes. I spoke with self-reference and said that you were quite right that yes. this week we do. We do. So let's, let's hop to... These are the stories that we thought were most important this week. Chris, the New York Times, okay, so let's start. John Fetterman was hospitalized a week ago. I think it was a week ago today. Yeah. And so the New York Times had a great story just about his rocky first couple of months in the Senate, well, first six weeks or so, and what it's been like for him. And it included this line, and we'll, we'll link the original New York Times story that noted that, in fact, campaigning hard when the medical advice had been for him to rest actually has taken a real medical and or a a medical toll on him and so he's been having a hard time since he got to the Senate and the Senate has been trying to accommodate him he still has these auditory processing problems and so then the report says said As Mr. Fetterman adjusts to his new life, the Senate and his colleagues are also adjusting to his special needs. And that sparked enormous backlash because the argument was, these needs are not special. These needs are not special? Yes. They look special. Are they not special? So this woman from the 19th, Sarah Luterman, Luterman, went on a Twitter rant that says, here's the article if you want to read the whole thing. The context does not help. Being a disabled reporter and reading how my colleagues think about people like us continues to be a trip. I use captions every day at work. If somebody called me special needs, I would go to HR. Why would you, first of all, why would you call her special needs at work? He's a senator. He's trying to be in the United States Senate, right? (laughs) It's so crazy. 
And so the Times then changed the article, and it says the Senate and his colleagues are also adjusting to his needs. But how can we not say that these are special needs? They're not the the needs of the rank and file in the Senate. And I don't even get how that's – well, it wasn't meant to I, other him. I believe that Sarah Lutterman, caregiving reporter at 19th News and at Columbia Aging – formerly of Columbia Aging – the Robert M. Butler, Jack Rosenthal fellow, I believe that she was offended. I don't, I don't disbelieve that she was offended, but I do wonder why the New York times would change the, like that's, that's not her. I don't question her offense, but I do question the New York times. I think either way saying special needs is fine and just saying needs is fine. But I do think it was a little silly to change well, to change it after this criticism. If you think that's silly, wait till we get to our next item about the New York Times. Yes. <laughs> so the New York Times has elicited the wrath of a long list of people from Judd Apatow, Apatow, Apatow. But however, uh, he's rich. To Gabrielle Union, to Glad, the gay lesbian. What does AA stand for? Alliance. Alliance. Nate Moore, he's got it. All right. Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Okay. So. I love the list of people, by the way, if I can just say the people who are celebrity listed as celebrities by The Hollywood Reporter. Hannah Gadsby, Joey Soloway, Margaret Cho. Not funny. Jamila Jamil, Lena Dunham. Wow. Jonathan Van Ness and Jazz Jennings. So it's a real A-list. It's a real blockbuster A-list group there. So they penned a letter to the New York Times assailing the New York Times for giving coverage, for for its coverage of what they refer to as bias, fringe theories, and dangerous inaccuracies in in the Times' coverage of transgender. Well, I love this uh, line. The transgender movement. I love the line where they say... I I know what you're talking about. We could spend paragraphs listing every anti-LGBTQ and every anti-trans article the Times has printed in just the past year. We could. We could do it. But we would rather focus on action. The one that they do choose to talk about, there's two things that are au courant with this. Number one, they're hiring of my former colleague and still friend David French for the editorial page, who holds a traditional view about gender that he has has expressed in loving, Christian, thoughtful ways, but has a, tr- a traditional view on gender. So he's a problem, but the one that they expressed the most, most outrage over was the misgendering, the obviously unintentional misgendering of a person at the club shooting in, it was Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that the the Times had misgendered this person, and that consequently calls to the New York Times to get it corrected took a day. It took. Can you imagine that it took a day to correct this? And this is shocking. Well, if that's your best one, right? If you have a million people signing this letter and all of this outrage, and your best one is it took too long to get a correction. Holy cannoli! I I went to read the letter because I did want to see what. Pieces they point exactly. to. Exactly. I will say, the Times, after being at the forefront of what I would say was like t- sort of trans rights reporting, I've perceived that they're trying to make a course yes. correction. So they ran a piece on the controversy around hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy for kids, 
etc. So it does seem to me they're they're trying to make a course correction and that that while they don't say it because they don't address the articles, that that is what these people are talking and, about and, or referring to. And 60 to. Minutes did too, and a lot of outlets. We have passed peak trans whatever it was. I wrote Maybe. about this for my dispatch column on Monday. This is a very difficult issue, especially as it relates to kids. And to identify things that you disagree with as being hateful will not produce the outcomes that you seek. If Judd Apatow and company believe that if they can silence the New York Times on this debate, not that the New York Times isn't radically progressive on these questions, but if they can silence the debate on this, that somehow the debate will not happen, they are wrong. The way that, and this is what I wrote about, the gay marriage fight, putting gay marriage at the center of the fight over the rights of gay and lesbian Americans was something that helped straight Americans, other Americans understand the plight, helped them move toward equality, raised popularity, created a lot of support because they were fundamentally saying something flattering, which is you have marriage, we want marriage too, right? And that was a departure for a gay rights movement that had been pretty strident and, by the way, pretty sex-forward in its early days. It was a shift that was effective. And when you look at what's going on in the trans community right now and what this, this kind of letter and this kind of activism says, you cannot shut down debate. You have to engage in debate and you have to persuade people to your point of view. And attacking the New York Times for not being doctrinaire on this demonstrates how the backlash is growing. Well, the thing I was struck by in going to read this letter was that they did not point to exactly. one inaccuracy in New York in the New York Times's well, the reporting of yeah. it, which was uncorrected. I mean, they did yes. not po- point to a piece of inaccurate reporting that stood the test of time at that paper. And I went seeking specific examples, curious as to what they were, and they basically said, "Well, we could do it, but we won't." We could. Uh, if we instead, wanted to, you know, we demand a meeting and we demand this and we demand that. So it will be it will be interesting to see, and we'll circle back on it if how the Times responds to this. Well, given- they better not respond by firing David French. If they fire David French, all of this goodwill that the Times has built up over the past several years by tr- basically okay, Chris, the Tom yeah. Cotton. Well, wait a minute. Okay, the Tom Cotton letter controversy and the departure of Barry Weiss was a tipping point, along with the cashiering of the science reporter who foolishly did a hypothetical with the N-word, as I recall. I'm, I'm probably getting some Don, of this Donald wrong. Donald McNeil. So this was the tipping point for the New York Times to course correct. And part of it has been, why do I always forget his name, whose work I love, the reporter who they have basically covering this beat, Michael Powell. Michael Powell. Sorry, Michael Powell. But- it's because he shares the name with Colin Powell's son. I don't know. But the Michael Powell's beat and more voices on the editorial page and the very coverage you describe on trans, these are all good things. So is hiring David French. But if this, they, they had better be willing to pay the cost for making these nods toward a better and more robust discussion. You know, walk into the lion's den Times has not exactly demonstrated a willingness to we'll pay such costs. So, you know, what do we have next? Oh, Chiefs. yes. Um, <laughs> Did you watch the Super Bowl? I fell asleep about halfway through, which was about 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m., 8 that's o'clock. correct. And so 
It was a good game. Somebody pointed out on Twitter, and we'll link the tr- the tweet that in the Times is right up. Whoever wrote up their Super Bowl coverage probably have probably having these special needs fracas fresh fresh in his mind was savvy enough not to refer to the Kansas City Chiefs and just refers to Kansas City's offense. The Eagles are called by their team name, but there's just a reference to the Kansas City offense. Kansas City had a 35-27 lead. Kansas City had scored. But it's Eagles, Eagles, Kansas Eagles. Kansas City has it's, – it's pretty funny. I guess the Chiefs are problematic because they have an arrowhead for their – And their name's the Chiefs. Well, there's Chiefs in other cultures. There's but I Chief Operating think... Officers and there's – yeah. Scottish chieftains. Woo! Go chief operating officers. C-O-O. Yeah. C-O-O. C-O-O. Yeah. No, um, I'm just saying the, the word itself is not like redskins where you... Chris, we're, we live in a culture where you can't have a master bedroom anymore. So you definitely can't have chiefs. I don't, but I know, I know that there are those who do. I know yes. that there are those who do. Yes, and they they live and work at the New York Times. Well, congratulations, chiefs. On a big win. Or congratulations, people who experience football in Kansas City. (laughs) And I want you now to hear Chris Berman. And I got to say, I feel for the man. I feel for Chris Berman as trying to fill a lot of time on Espen and talking about much was made over the fact that there were two black men who were the quarterback. For the first time, both quarterbacks in the Super Bowl were African-American. And Chris Berman had some thoughts. Those are great, but this one coming in, we had the number one seeds. Yeah. These teams are 16 and three. We had the Kelsey brothers. We had so much. We had Andy Reid against Philadelphia, his old team, and we can go on. We were so euphoric. We should have asked them about that. But also, of course, two African American quarterbacks starting against each other in the Super Bowl for the first time. Fittingly, February 12th is Abe Lincoln's birthday. Here we go with the highlights. In case you missed it. Well, it was worth the wait. It was worth the wait, folks. It was worth the wait for Abraham Lincoln. Surely the ghost of the great emancipator looking down from heaven. What a fitting birthday present for him that Patrick Mahomes was under center on Super Bowl. What Super Bowl was this? XLVIVV 53? Nate Moore knows it all today. Nate Moore... Pack knowledge in his sweater. It was wrong. It was mistaken. Wrong sweater. No cable net. No room for extra knowledge. But anyway, I feel bad for Chris Berman because it's a goofy ah thing to say, but it's also like, you know, you're you're trying to fill time. You're reaching for the stuff. And one of the disadvantages. I I thought where this was going was backlash for giving Abe Lincoln credit. (laughs) I don't live in that world. I don't live in that world. I thought that you were going to say and – Everybody flipped out at him for say, you know, for praising Abraham Lincoln in any way. It's it was just a goofy. It's a goofy thing. It's 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 reaching right. And one of the one of the lessons here, the amount of coverage of the Super Bowl is so ridiculous, so absurd that you just it's too many hours of things to say about one football game. What do we got next? Oh, more bad news for Fox News in its battle to fend off these defamation claims over the stolen election brouhaha. So Reuters reports that Smartmatic had sought 
2.7 billion in damage are in damages arguing that Fox News knowingly lied about its technology and how it was used to order in order to boost ratings and keep Trump supporters from defecting to the right-wing networks Newsmax and One American News. Tuesday's decision lets Smartmatic continue its cases against Fox News as well as hosts Maria Bar- Bartiromo and former host Lou Dobbs. It also reinstated some previously dismissed claims against Rudolph Giuliani, the former New York City mayor, and Smartmatic's case against host Janine Pirro. So that adds to the other defamation suit that Fox News has on its hand, and these are two multi-billion dollar. Yeah, this one is on deck for trial in April in Delaware, and this was the last... This was the this is this was Fox's effort to to appeal the rulings that have gotten it to this point. Of course, they would appeal any verdict, but what this means is without settlement, and that's so much money, without settlement, Maria Bartiromo, Lou Dobbs, other Fox people will have to testify and all of that all of those internal documents will come out. And it will be. So is that different than what's happened in the Dominion cases or is that going to trial too? Oh, that's I'm sorry. I was talking about the Dominion case that's going to trial. The okay. smart, the Smartmatic is it's coming for, along. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. right, OK, right, that's right. what I thought. Yes, that's right. That's what I thought. OK. All right. Up next, we have Republican senators pushing back against Biden's FCC nominee, Gigi Sohn. And this is the third time that the Biden administration has nominated Gigi Sohn. Yeah. And to this position, and she is like a rabid left-wing activist well, she's who the one, has made some interesting right-wing allies, but you, you know more about this well, than I do. I, do, I don't know anything except for I know she's the one who called, what did she call Fox? She said, dangerous to our democracy, that she she has been a crusader against cable news and certainly wants to expand the FCC's regulatory. FCC doesn't control cable. I believe she's also the one, and I'm sorry if I'm conflating something, but that she's the one that has talked about equal time and things like that being required and and government regulation of speech. So she's a real Lulu, and Biden keeps bringing her back. And the reason, of course, is, and this isn't just at the FCC. This is at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and this is at other agencies there are a lot of vacancies that Biden has that wants to fill, and he's going to need to appoint some Republicans in some of these slots because, for instance, there was a commissioner on the FTC who resigned who is a Republican. And by the way, kudos to the Wall Street Journal for keeping that one under wraps. They were able to, to drop her op-ed before any of it leaked. So Whose was this? I forget her name, but she would, and she dropped an incendiary op-ed about what's going on with Lena Khan at the FTC, which very uncharacteristic in the Wall Street Journal a- announcing her res- resignation. So long story, the the takeaway is there's going to be a battle and he's going to, Biden's going to have to reach some terms with Joe Manchin and others to get a suite of nominees through and it will have to include some Republicans. And Gigi, so I, I feel like, Gigi Stone, who is so, her regulatory approach and attitudes are so incendiary that she's like a bargaining chip almost, that maybe the idea is like, oh, we'll take her, that maybe she's going to get her nomination taken down yet again in exchange for a a deal. It's these, these kinds of things work like hostage swaps or when you have spot, the two sides have spies, (laughs) swap them back and forth. 
Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We got to get to inflation How's headlines. the economy? How is um, the economy? I have a favorite among these, but. My the my two, so I just noted that there were two this headlines. Is like, this is also like recurring theme because every month we get one of these, which is telling us like, you know, things are trying to tell us things are better than what Wa- your wallet Washington says. Post news alert at Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. 834 a.m. on Valentine's Day. Economy alert. Prices rose more slowly in January compared to a year ago, a seventh straight month of easing inflation. And I was like, dag on, things must be getting a lot better. Wait a minute, CNBC, what do you have to say? Oh, inflation rose five-tenths of a percent in January, more than expected, and up 6.4% from a year ago. Jeez Louise, Washington Post, Simmer they, down. Yeah. Simmer no, down. They, they really need you to know that things are things getting better. Things are actually better. better. Yes. Things are better. You think it's because bad. it's rising less. It's rising right. more slowly. Rising more slowly. Than it should be. Your money is growing worthless at a slower pace. Your savings are being eroded at a much slower pace. And yeah, it was more than expected. But, you know, to make a to make a equity omelet, sometimes you've got to break a few eggs. Yeah. Just... Well, I actually think that the the Wall Street Journal takes the cake on this. No pun Um, intended. Truly. February, again, Valentine's Day, because this is when this news came out. Headline, to save money, maybe you should skip breakfast. Okay? (laughs) Fatty. (laughs) Several breakfast staples saw a sharp price increase due to a perfect storm. But that's crazy because I thought it was just slowing, growing. Slowing. Slower saw sharp price increases due to a perfect storm of bad weather and disease outbreaks, blah, blah, blah. Egg prices increased 8.5% in January. I actually want to sign in so I can get... Oh, uh, I'll take it from here. Egg prices increased 8.5% in January from a month earlier and are up 70.1% over the past year, the highest annual rate since 1973. I love there's a guy somewhere at like the Bureau of Economic Statistics who's like the egg guy. He's the egg man. The Beastie Boys wrote the song about him. And he's like, I got the egg numbers. I've got the, I've been tracking these things for 40 years and I have the egg numbers. The, The best is the kicker. Breakfast lovers might be better off just having a cup of coffee, but go with roasted, not instant. Prices for roasted coffee declined by 0.1% last month, but instant coffee rose by 3.6% monthly increase. Now, I want to be generous to the Wall Street Journal here in saying that they didn't mean... It has to be tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, it's like, yeah. hey, you think that's expensive? Totally Try this. It's yeah. like a little jokey. But certainly to the nationalist right... Oh, by the way, can I tell you? Let me tell you something. And we've settled on a term for it. Twitter Wrangler. The Twitter Wrangler is spectacular and putting content out there. And I don't have to go on Twitter and it's amazing. I'm super pleased. So I'm at Chris Steyerwalt. If you want to follow me, I won't interact with you, but there is now content available to you there. But I should say Twitter would love a headline like this because, of course, if you're the nationalist right or the progressive left, you're like, you see what the Wall Street Journal tells the starving people of America to do? Skip breakfast. Real nice neoliberals. Up next, Chris. Yes. Oh, our little Washington Post section. No, no, no. No, wait. Oh, oh, sorry. We have a mislabeled. Sorry. We have a stray. Thanks for nothing, Colin. Yeah. Thanks for nothing. Wow. 
Wow, you're really too busy canoeing around. Yeah, exactly. Eating gore. Put the oar down. Put yeah. the oar down for a second. <laughs> okay, let's. You hit our gorp. hit a, hit our. <laughs> that's like such a Minnesota term. Just just a bag gorp. of gorp. I out remember in a, out in an old town canoe in the middle of a placid lake. When I was in grade, they made us in the dead of winter. It was like the first week back from winter break. So already the most depressing week of the entire year. They sent us to this camp up north. So. And you had to do, like, outdoor activities, like snowshoing and cross-country skiing. It was, like, negative 30. This was a, this was a private this school. People thought this was fun. This yeah. was a private school. Yeah, okay, we, okay. my parents paid for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. it was good for you. It built character. Oh, it was so horrible. Built character. All right, so. We ate a lot of gorp when we were out snowshoeing. And look at the nourishment. Look at the nutrition that it gave you. That is how Colin has the strength that he needs to edit both an audio and video version of Ingstain Wretches. Okay, David Malpass, Reagan Naid economist who was appointed by Trump to chair the World Bank, resigned a year early. The New York Times, New York Times reporter David Gellis took a victory lap on this, but I just wanted to note that in the lead of the New York Times story, in before the lead of the New York Times story, so here's, you have his byline, David Gellis. Under the byline, there's a note. Gellis questioned the World Bank president about his views on climate change at a live event in New York in September. Okay, cool. And then before you get to the story, now there's another box, Climate Forward. There's an ongoing crisis and tons of news. Our newsletter keeps you up to date. Get it in your inbox. Hey, New York Times, again, simmer it down a little bit here on that. I I want to have, like, selling your climate coverage that way makes me want to i could take that and say subscribe to the washington free beacon exactly uh, before you read this have you thought about the crisis that's going on yeah but here the the what i was int- what i found interesting in the story is look outlets take victory laps and they got a scalp here clearly with malpass because of something malpass said to gellies gellis in an interview that was by the way a an enticement, right? It was a New York Times. It was, it was, so it's, it's product wrapped in product wrapped in product. Remember Sam Bankman fried talking to Aaron Ross Sorkin. It's like the New York Times is getting really good at making a baklava of <laughs> product placement. But anyway, so he's taking a scout, but goes forward. I do have qualms when you, when you create the story report on the story, and then take the victory lap all the way through. because Why? Oh, that's like frankly what triple Ma- crown. Frankly, what Malpass said was, he said, I'm not a scientist. But what happened was Malpass oh, said. But, so you're, but you're, there are two different things. One is substance. One is process. Okay. Like you said, when you create the story, report on the story, take a victory lap, that to me is like, Great reporting. But create the story is my point. They, they like, dusted up a controversy out of nothing because they're, they're ridiculous. But, but pressing, tossing out a controversial a question to him where he steps in muck is, like, the it's a good test a of these, light, light these people's. Dust. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing but wrong. But it is a sign of the times that he's then forced to resign. Sign and, of the times indeed. Yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> it, it's, it's ridiculous. But... Like, we would do the same thing at the Beacon, 100%. All right. Gentrification. Did you know that of all the ways in which you are failing, America, have you heard about gentrification by fire? Your carbon consumption and emissions 
leading to mega fires in California, which is leading to gentrification, which is the worst, right? Because affordable housing is not available because, and here, let me just read a paragraph from the Washington Post interactive piece, gentrification by fire, with a picture of just this hellscape from, I assume, the campfire and it's by Scott Wilson, their climate report, one of their, I'm sure, many climate reporters. Yeah. No, they it, got a freaking army to report on this, on this, the crisis. Sponsored by yeah. Rolex, as you count down <laughs> no, the minutes. No, sponsored by Exxon. No, oh, well, there was that. Come but on. They, they did have a climate solutions brand that was sponsored with Rolex. Count down the moments till Armageddon on your Submariner. Yeah. Okay, it was the first megafire of California's new megafire era. Oh, a flashing red light along the west path into a new climate. The Tubbs fire was also the start of a new kind of economic gentrification. Dun, dun, dun. One caused by the increasingly harmful effects of climate change, the higher cost of rebuilding and insuring homes in fire-prone areas, and a housing stock diminished by fire and flooding. The results have undermined the push to build more affordable housing, a goal set by Gavin Newsom and the rest of the state Democratic leadership, whose political ethic has made a priority of narrowing the gap between rich and poor, an imbalance particularly pronounced in the nation's most popular state. Is it possible that the politicians in Sacramento will not be able to eradicate the housing gap and income inequality? I'm, I don't know. I'm, uh, it's possible. They we should look into really it. They have a really good track record. I mean, they've been killing yeah. it so far. So far, haven't missed a beat. They're- but it's possible. And the only explanation for why it wouldn't work is climate change. The only, only reason that they cannot succeed in this is probably <laughs> climate change. And also... Would you like the homes to not be more fire safe? Would you like the codes to be written differently? I, well, I'll just I'll save I'll save my feelings about this for our next item, which I was yes. I, I came to belatedly because who reads Davos coverage? Not me. I certainly don't. But there is a word that has come to us, and it is polycrisis. Now, you taught me the word polycule. As it related yes, to the living arrangements, Sam, Sam Bankman's the living Freed, arrangements Freed. of Sam Bankman yeah. Freed and his, she said she wanted to be in a sex harem. Chinese, she wanted to have a Chinese, Chinese hierarchy. Yeah, Chinese where hierarchy. Everyone clearly knew like, Western where harems they fell are just and, yeah where they stood in this polycule. Western efforts at haremdom are really yeah. lame. But anyway, so you taught me polycule, and now the good people at Davos have taught me polycrisis, and Daniel Dresner at Vox has a helpful piece. Are we headed toward a polycrisis? The buzzword of the moment explained. I bet not. So polycrisis, here's here's what he said. As someone who has written a book about zombie apocalypses, apocalypse, and taught a course about the end of the world, I have a smidgen more sympathy for the polycrisis concept. I wouldn't think so. I think its proponents are trying to get at something more than just history happening. They're putting a name to the belief that a more interconnected complex world is vulnerable to an interconnected complex global catastrophe. So what the hell is a polycrisis, brah? He didn't say brah, but the brah is implied. The quick and dirty answer is that it's the concentration of shocks that generate the crises that trigger crises in other systems that in turn worsen the initial crises, making the combined effect far, comma, far worse than the sum of the parts. Hey, you know what? Life is nasty, brutish, and short. Love the ones around you. Try to lead a good life. Leave the world better than you found it. And calm down. Holy cannoli. The idea that we are, it, it is natural for human beings 
to believe in an arc of history and that we live at a special and different time than other times. We do not. We face different particular problems, but what is, our, what is the fundamental problem, Eliana Johnson, that human beings for all of history, for all of our existence have faced? War. Human nature. War is a manifestation <laughs> of it, but human nature. Misery. Yeah, human nature. The problem is us, right? We have met the enemy, and it is us. And we have problems in different ways at different times, but problems will not be abolished. Hate will not be abolished. War will not be abolished. Misery will not be abolished. It can be, minim- it can be minimized. We can take steps to, we can individually do things. This polycrisis jazz, there is a apocalypticism on both the left and the right that is, here's, I'll tell you what the real polycrisis is. You know what the real polycrisis is? Crisis thinking. It's a climate crisis, it's a income crisis, it's a every crisis. You can't effectively deal with things as crises. Let's take, and I think very much the climate and the national debt function the same way for the two sides, right? So conservatives say, why don't you do something about debt and spending? We've had a big discussion about that around Biden's State of the Union and the impending insolvency of Medicaid. Okay, why don't we do something about it? Because it hasn't manifested itself as a debilitating problem yet, right? The bad things that we're told of haven't happened. For the left, what is it? It's always the climate crisis. Are you worried enough about the climate crisis? And people on the right say, I don't know, I guess, and maybe the fires in California are worse. Maybe this is worse, but life goes on. Life continues. So, Don't you know that more women are getting beaten by their spouses because of the exactly, crisis? Exactly. So this kind— so, Obvious. So in talking—trying to get attention for things by talking about them as existential threats is, is a short-sighted effort as opposed to— talking about ways on things that we agree that we might be able to do together and start with agreement. But polycrisis, give me a break. Grow up. I am so worked up about the item after this next one that I almost skipped the next one. But we have to Are do our- Are you in polycrisis? Yes. I, we have to do our- we, I feel like we haven't had a little Taylor Lorenz segment for oh. a long time, but Taylor Lorenz. I, and I, my theory is that she blocked me on Twitter, so now I see none of her tweets, so I cannot bring this awesome content to our listeners. I'm no, a, I'm, it's I've a loss. Okay. I've been it's okay a with, a, with a drought. So, so please bring them to our attention. Anyhow, she has written a piece with the headline, These women journalists were doing their jobs. That made them targets. And this is what we call projection. And she writes that in many countries, women who are targeted in these campaigns are doing some of the most crucial journalistic work in their regions. And she's talking about they become this literally protecting social media platforms that optimize for engagement and a media landscape that rewards outrage and hyperbole at literally her own, literally her own has been rewarded by these social media platforms They fuel digital attacks. Online abusers manufacture controversy about specific women stalking and harassing them and their families. Time and again, research shows the news organizations that employ women journalists who are under assault turn against them, depriving them of career opportunities and driving them from the profession. The headline of this article should have literally been like Taylor Taylor Lorenzo memoir. Yes. And I think her 
the she does a she perf- she personifies the trend in a journalist from Pakistan, Arida Faruqi, who I bet being a female journalist in Pakistan sucks. I bet that's awful, right? And not because the online outrage mobs come. For I you. think it's Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's definitely not that you're living in a destabilizing state where radical Islamists are increasingly taking the lead. I, I'm sure it's Twitter's fault. I think Elon Musk is probably the issue here. Well, th- this actually should have been my obsession, but there was a lot. The Washington Post and Glenn Kessler have stepped in to to analyze the claim that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinfo. Okay. And he latches on to the Politico piece published in October of 2020 with the headline, Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinfo, comma, Intel officials say. Okay. And it is the most ridiculous piece of journalism. First of all, why why are you writing about this right now now that we all know that this was all wrong? Well, we but we've been we we among many have said that the press should be called to account but, for its failings on this, right? Totally, but it's just strange. Like we this has already been resolved. We don't need a fact check on it from Glenn Kessler. And so James Clapper comes forward to oh say there was message distortion. Former director of national intelligence James Clapper told the fact checker in a telephone interview, all we were doing was raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. It was clear in paragraph five, and he's pointing to his letter. So, first of all, lots of clips of Clapper after this letter, which published, have surfaced of him describing the laptop as Russian disinformation. This is total BS. Second of all, Kessler takes Politico to task for their headline because it didn't capture the hedges in the letter, which I also think is crap. If you I went back and read the original letter and it completely accurately characterizes what they were saying, which is like this is disinformation Um, with, with a bunch of CYA phrases and the idea that these guys who are in the media all the time clapper mike morell at all did not know how their letter would be received by the press and handled by the press is crazy and that he's uh, that kessler is allowing them to come forward two and a half later two and a half years later and not fact checking them these intel officials no, it's it, insane to me. I do not. I think Politico's miss was not in its characterization of the letter, but the lack of skepticism of the yes. claims of the intel officials. Like there, there are so many layers to this. Here's his conclusion. The letter does not clearly say the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian dis- disinformation program, notwithstanding the Politico headline. In fact, the letter mainly argues that Russia may have had a role in obtaining and disseminating Hunter Biden's emails, which could mean as little as Russian bots spreading awareness on social media. But it was to Joe Biden's advantage to misleadingly embrace the message conveyed in the headline, just as for political reasons for Republicans to continue to make that claim as well. So insane. By, by choosing a narrow so what he says is true but he 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 fenced a narrow enough space in the fact check to be safe right and he also so he he tries to distinguish in this fact check which will link he says well it wasn't misinformation even though the letter's authors said it was misinformation it was information warfare by russia which there's still no evidence of he doesn't cite actually any evidence, but then he goes and asks the intel official, is this what you meant? Did you actually mean that it was information warfare by Russia? 
because which means using accurate information, but like in the in the attempt to sway an election. And they're like, no, that's not what we meant. Well, so they tell them, no, no, that's not what we meant. Here's what I want to know. How is the Washington Free Beacon failing to get recognition in our following item? This is from the Washington Examiner. I don't get what restoring America means. I mean, whatever. I, I don't understand that part. But this is a good and interesting report. I don't know whether it will restore America or not. By Gabe Kaminsky, who is looking into the State Department funding anti-disinformation efforts, as we're talking about disinformation, and the funds that go to the Global Disinformation Index, a British organization with two affiliated U.S. nonprofit groups, is feeding blacklists to ad companies with the intent of defunding and shutting down websites peddling alleged disinformation. The Washington Examiner reported, well, we're reading it in the Washington Examiner, Gabe. We know where we are. This same disinformation group has received $330,000 from two State Department-backed entities linked to the highest levels of government, raising concerns from First Amendment lawyers and members of Congress. GDI, which meant something different when I was in college, has identified the 10, quote, riskiest news outlets for disinformation are the American Spectator, what? Newsmax, I mean... The Federalist, The American Conservative, One American News, okay, The Blaze, The Daily Wire, Real Clear Politics, Reason, and The New York Post. I like Reason in there. I do like the the magazine from the Cato Institute thrown in with One American News. Yeah, Free Beacon hardest hit. Yeah, where's the Free Beacon? It's like you guys aren't even trying. I literally had people in the office come and say that to me. I mean, come on. Get, like, why didn't? Why weren't we on the blacklist? I better luck next year in getting the State Department to target you. Disinformation, if I can just say, like most buzzwords, loses its meaning. It's a meaningless term. Has become a a meaningless term in our discussion. Is much of what. Many of these outlets, look, One American News is hot garbage. It is a hot steaming pot of garbage. I, every, every time I watch it has a creepy North Korean energy that is really, really, really unpleasant to see. Do you remember the 30 Rock episode where Jack Donaghy's girlfriend, no. Avery Jessup, was taken captive by the North Koreans and had to do a newscast? I don't even want to think about the things they made me do. Earlier today, America's credit rating was downgraded to triple fart minus. One America has Avery Je- a captive Avery Jessup talking about North Korea energy in it. And sure, there's stuff wrong, but come on, disinformation. Do you remember when Trump, I, this is just reminding me of at the summit in Singapore when Trump and G met and Trump, or tr- sorry, not Trump and, and Kim met. Yep. Trump told people he really liked the North Korean newscast. It was good. They were like so praiseworthy. The gorilla channel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was really good. They do a good job over there. Note to you, but the State Department should not be funding any organization in any way that is at all targeting American free speech of American organizations. Whatever you think of Newsmax, whatever you think of the Federalist, whatever, who cares? Just this, the U.S. government has no role in this. This is the wrong thing to do. It was a great report. Yes. It was a very good report. Do you, do you know what publication this? it was in? I didn't see any <laughs> references to it. I don't know. Do you want to talk about this next one? I love this story, okay. by the way. I didn't care. Okay. Okay. Well, 
You I, talk about it. I care enough for both of us. Okay. New York Magazine, the only success story in right-wing media. So you know how there's been 50, you know, Gab and Truth parlor. Social, Parlor, things that are eventually overwhelmed with My Little Pony eroticism or whatever. The... And no offense, bronies, if we have any brony viewers out there, I know that yours is not an explicitly erotic obsession, and I, 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 I meant no brony slight. But I had no idea about, I don't know, I, I don't know it because I, I, I know it so little about I can't Rumble. remember its name. It's Rumble. Rumble. It's a video. It's, it's an unwokened YouTube, right? So users can post their own video, and it has huge numbers. It has giant numbers, and is succeeding. The Colin, have you tried it? Are you familiar? It's where you put it's it's where you put your hiking videos. <laughs> That's you you put your GoPro videos up yeah, there. Yeah, all the yes, good stuff exactly, goes there. Exactly. Gorp and a smile. Founded in 2013 as as an alternative video hosting service, Rumble more recently rebranded as Neutral Video Platform, designed to be immune to cancel culture. In 2023, WSJ reported that the company had taken investment from a group of prominent conservative venture capitalists, including Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance, and former Trump advisor Darren Blanton. Rumble went public last year during the SPAC mania. I don't know what the- SPAC. Oh, that the thing. special acquisition. Where Trump got money, yeah. rich people special to give him money. Special purpose acquisition yeah, 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 yeah. companies. And, sh- and shares in the company now trade on the NASDAQ. It is worth just over $3 billion. That's amazing. So I guess this just goes back to when we talk about what's going to happen in online media and we talk about what's going to happen with media in general, there is competition. There is competition. There is competition. And Elon Musk owns Twitter. Everybody calm down. Up next, another item that I don't care about. Come on, you can't do that. You can't do (laughs) that. Before we get to the style section. Come on. uh, Well, just so you know that when I say I'm fired up, uh, you're always getting my unvarnished take. (laughs) New York Mag reports that Trump's meatball Ron nickname is better than Ron DeSanctimonious. I mean, what a dumb article. Well, it goes deep. It goes deep. Please, we don't need your opinions on Trump's nicknames. Right. I mean, who cares? And it goes long on the nickname analysis. Who cares? Is, and by the way, Meatball seems like an adorable name. I know of a miniature horse named Meatball who is just as cute as possible. And I think it's a cute, it's a cute name. And I think Trump should not call. Now, there is mention in this article that Meatball may be an anti-Italian-American slur <laughs> and that he's trying to invoke the fact that Ron DeSantis would be the first Italian-American president. Oh, my gosh. And that, that that may be part of it. But even if it is aimed at DeSantis's Italian heritage, meatballs are delicious. You know, he should just embrace it. Totally. Lovable like, meatball. Meatball Ron here. Yeah. Meatball Ron. Do you remember the movie Meatballs? No. I have not seen any movies. Not seen any meatballs? If you find yourself talking to me and saying, have you seen, just stop right there. Meatballs is funny. It's a camp movie. It's a funny movie. I have not seen it. Colin has the tattoo. <laughs> it's it's a movie. He just measures a movie. How many canoe scenes are in a movie? All right, we, thank it you is for now time me. for the style section. We have some real Chris items in the style section. Come on. The first one. The second this one is, is a definitely very, a Chris this item. Is a very, this is very unfair. I feel very. Um, this, the first is from The Onion. With the headline, 
Adam Schiff seeks Diane Feinstein's endorsement by playing into delusion he's high school sweetheart who died in World War II. <laughs> I shared that with the group because it's funny. It's funny. It's funny. It That's is funny. all. It's funny. The Onion does a good job, and thank you, The Onion, for being funny. And the next one. This is awesome. You're, you're not willing to talk about it? You won't go there? Okay. Headline from Deutsche Welle. <laughs> German director suspended after critics smeared with dog poo in news that could only come from truly. Germany. Truly could or only it's come. it's very like Florida man. Well, this is. That wouldn't involve an art critic of yeah, any form. This, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that would be a wrestling critic. Somebody yeah, exactly. who was writing up a local wrestling match. A German opera house has suspended its chief ballet director for allegedly smearing the face of a journalist with dog excrement. <laughs> The reported assault came after a scathing review of the ballet director's last show. The Hanover State Opera in northern Germany said it was suspending ballet director and choreography Marco Goethe with immediate effect yeah, on Monday, as well as imposing a house ban following a reported assault over the weekend. Goki allegedly confronted dance critic Wiebe Huster in the theater's busy foyer and smeared it was a woman smeared her face with dog excrement now they have a better version of axios what is alleged to have happened that's better than be smart he hooster who writes she writes for the frankfurter allemagne zeitung had been at the saturday premiere of the ballet faith love and hope at the opera house during a break in the show Gilka, who was one of the show's choreographers, allegedly approached her, threatened to ban her, blaming her for ticket subscription cancellations. Grown increasingly upset, before getting physical, he pulled out a paper bag with animal feces and mauled the face of our dance critic with the contents. After that, he was able to go his own way, unhindered through the crowded foyer. He, he took dog poop in a brown paper bag to work, just in hopes. <laughs> That he would meet the critic there. So, hey, by the way, Taylor Lorenz, here's a woman facing here's a woman facing problems yeah. because of her job. Why don't you write her up? I laughed. Okay, we got the laugh. That's yeah. something. All right. That brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. Oh, you got a good I did. Okay. The Washington Post has the making of Anna Paulina Luna. And Anna Paulina Luna is a freshman congresswoman mm-hmm. who became, I think she became the youngest congresswoman elected. Is that right? I want it. Yeah, she's she's very young. The Post she, identifies her as the first Mexican-American elected Maybe the youngest woman. Florida. Maybe very it's the specific. youngest woman because that guy, Maxwell Fro- Frost, was the youngest and on Abe Lincoln's birthday. That's a great, a okay. great satisfaction. They did the version of an article that's like the Politico magazine. I sat across from Stephen Miller in third grade, and this is what he was, you know, he was a jerk all the way back then. Okay. Anna Paulina Luna talked a lot about having a hard knock life on the campaign trail and how she'd overcome quite a bit, came from a broken family. Her father was a drug addict and spent time in jail, according to her, et cetera. So the, this Washington Post article basically tries to poke holes in her life story and say she didn't have it that bad. You, could, you can feel the words, the next George Santos, 
like exactly just come seeping out of the pores of uh, this article. It is pathetic. So the best is she her parents actually were were divorced. So it says Luna lived as a child in various apartments and homes in the Orange County cities of Irvine, Aliso Viejo, and Santa Ana, as well as in the city of Los Angeles, blah, blah. Okay. So she moved at least four times. And she also spent time in Tustin and Victorville while visiting her father. She was all over the place as a kid. Monica Luna, the mother, said she was the only source of meaningful financial support for the family and had to rely on welfare assistance for periods of time, especially she was putting herself through college at the University of California at Irvine and UCLA School of Law. Then they go to other relatives have different recollections, saying Luna and her mother were supported by an extended family. The whole family kind of raised her. My dad was a part of her life when she was younger, and we all kind of coddled her, said Nicole Meyerhofer, a first cousin who is three years younger than Luna. She shared with the Post photos of the two girls growing up together and into early adulthood, including a snapshot from a family birthday party when they were young. She was always part of everything, all these family gatherings and activities. Well, case closed. She had it really good. It is trying so hard this article is trying so hard now look i absolutely accept that this woman overcooked her biography and that she emphasized certain points and that she may not have always identified the same way and that she may have played well, they take issue that she changed her last name from mayor hoffer to luna she never identified as a mexican-american before she ran for congress is it possible that a politician how about how about bill de blasio Right, you know Bill de Blasio's name that he was given. No, it's it's a it's a Lulu of a of a of a high caste German name, but he dropped his father's name in exchange to take his mother's name, and the answer is Oren Wilhelm Jr. He dropped that in favor of Bill de Blas. Politicians do this, right? It's helpful politically. It was helpful for. Bill de Blasio to be de Blasio, not Wilhelm. And it's, it was helpful to, what was her original name? Mayor Hoffer. It was Anna Mayer Hoffer. It was better maybe for her running for Congress or getting ahead in life to be Anna Luna. Or maybe she just hated her dad or maybe whatever. But the depths to which the Post goes on the story are just it's pathetic. Cuckoo. But the Post got what, it's, got what it's wanted, right? The Jews. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, GOP congressman, here's the headline from, it's a AP, everybody did the same story. GOP congresswoman's family rebukes Jewish heritage this claim. Was, this was part of the Post story, which she, Luna, was so crazy. Her father was a Messianic Jew, and she she said something like she had Jewish heritage. And so the family comes out and says, well, no, she wasn't Jewish. It's like, yeah, Messianic Jews are not Jews. Well, and they say, and and the the father's father, or his grandfather, her grandfather, the father's father was a Nazi child whatever, soldier yeah. Yeah. in Nazi Germany. But like, it has no bearing on anything. It's it's too much, and it's the George Santos effect. I if you went through every member of the freshman class, Democrat and Republican, and gave this level of scrutiny. You would find goofy stuff in most of them, right? You you could find something in the freshman class about stuff that they exaggerated or stuff that they didn't do. She is very flamboyant. And she's also a former, was she a swimsuit model? 
she modeled. It, it was like she was modeling to help make money, you know, while she was doing Putting other herself things. through yeah, college. Yeah. Colin, don't give me that disapproving face. <laughs> but the... She is a flamboyant person. She dresses flamboyantly. She's a former bikini model. She's all of this stuff. So she she benefits by the she fascination. She is conventionally attractive. Who Grace. cares? Who cares? But my point is, she is flamboyant, right? The way she dresses is certain. She wears men's like very stylized, tailored clothes. She wears neckties, but in a very form fitting way, or whatever. Who cares? But she is in it for the intention, like Matt Gates, like Alexandria Ocasio. Like we can list a member members of the house that are in it for a lot of attention. And if you did this kind of deep dive on them, you'd probably find stuff that would be embarrassing and controversial because they're human beings. That's what you find when you look at human beings is that they're embarrassed and controversial. What is your obsession? Oh yeah, oh yeah, you betcha. I grew up around trains. My father was a coal salesman and in those days the coal business was the biggest customer, I don't know who is anymore, but the biggest customer of the railroads. Uh, and I also grew up in a town with a lot of train traffic coming through it. And I, whatever, West Virginia, coal, trains, etc. So I have watched with particular interest, the coverage around the train derailment in Ohio that got, has, has gotten wall to wall, truly exhaustive coverage. I want to praise reporter Dominic Pino at National Review who did a really good, really good job in breaking down what is really going on so that you can find out what it is because you will not be surprised. The issue of this train derailment has caused massive political jockeying. J.D. Vance wasting no time. And, you know, this, this is, it's, it's got the narrative of a Netflix movie, right? Mm -hmm. These poor, you know, local yokels poisoned by uncaring company, and blah, 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 blah. And of course, it's probably much more complicated than that. And the, the summary from Dominic Pino, evidence so far suggests a freak accident, but investigators are working to determine a cause and irresponsible speculation from commentators and politicians should cease. I think this is true. He quotes William Venturuno, Venturuno from Rail, Railway Age, which is the trade pub for the industry, that the derailment probably occurred due to a combination of factors and unfortunate timing, passed a wayside hotbox detector that saw zero defects. Shortly after that, a wheel bearing started to overheat, which in turn caused an axle to severely overheat as the bearing got hotter. This eventually resulted in an axle failure that unfortunately occurred with a few within a few moments of the train, having passed a second hotbox detector that flagged the problem, alerting the crew. The engineer immediately applied the brakes, but the axle had already failed and the train derailed. If true, that would mean that the engineer did exactly what he was supposed to do in response to that signal. Investigators are examining the hotbox detectors to see da-da-da-da-da. Commenting on the, on the response to the accident, Banchuono wrote, Misinformation driven by uninformed reporting and local and national media, stoked by various groups who appear to be leveraging the derailment and its aftermath to support their own agendas, has been spreading faster than the fire that resulted from it. That includes Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who speculated that the official response to the incident was motivated by the fact that residents of East Palestine are white and mostly voted for Donald Trump in 2020. It also includes comedian John Stewart, who said, it looks like Chernobyl. Again, simmer down, calm it down, people. This was very unfortunate that this happened. And the people in East Palestine, I feel really bad for. 
And this is a this is a wreck. Just like I felt really bad for the people in 2012 or so when they had a similar derailment in New Jersey, and it's it's the worst and would be very concerning. But the way that this is being abused politically is really irresponsible. And it's not because I, I assume the people in New Jersey where the similar spill took place were not Trump voters, and the same thing happened to them. So. You know, trying to make this into Three Mile Island is not cool, and it's not, again, it's infantilizing or minimizing the agency of the people who live there and of Mike DeWine's capacity to respond to it and the way that it's going. And it's just a lot of scaremongering, and it it is not helpful, and stop doing that. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. Do it. We have a note from Brian in McLean, Virginia, who says, Chris and Eliana, great podcast. It is smart, (laughs) funny, entertaining, and although appropriately critical of the media, in my opinion, it conveys the respect you have for the realities of the business. Stop right there. What else do we want from from an email? Three potential topics, if you haven't commented on them on the podcast before. The first, thoughts about the weekly NYT news quiz. Do you take it and how do you do? I don't. I never even knew it existed. Oh, it's great. I take it. I take it with. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. My eldest man child. Okay. Usually you can get it there. It's usually fair, but sometimes there's a question that you're like, "Come on, Nate gets them all." I'm sure. Oh, did you see Nate's gesture? Okay, I'm one. For I wish one. Nate. Had, I, we need a Nate cam because I was like, Nate gets I'm them all, two and for he goes. Two. Wait, let's do a live taking. I'll do it too. Uh. Oh, woo! Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Ooh, two is gonna really set me back. But I know Leonard Bernstein will not be the next conductor of the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> I feel confident. Okay. In that, you got it wrong. Did you got? Did you? I'm I'm a, I'm on question seven. Okay. I, I completely guessed on one of these, but. Oh. Chris, I'm nine out of eleven. Okay, I got seven out of eleven. And I am with the vast majority in my recent average, but I'm with only 11% of readers scoring seven. Which ones did you, Nate, what'd you get? 10 out of 11. Nate schooled us both. Not surprising. Not surprising. Nate Cam. Which ones did you get wrong? I got Zelensky's first stop in Europe. I got that wrong. I said Brussels because I Me didn't too. Know. That's what I thought. It would make sense. And then I got the New York City Asylum Seekers wrong. I got that one wrong too, but I also got the new director of the New York Philharmonic wrong. And I got, oh, the AMC announces planned different prices. I said, if you buy concessions, it's sit in the theater, which is great. Upsell. Okay. okay so there's the news quiz. Do you like it? Yeah, I like it. Okay, I like it Oh my gosh, love it. Brian's second question is, what is your opinion of the Hills Internet slash YouTube show The Rising, and do you have a sense if it is successful and influential? Where does The Hill get money to produce it? It seems absent of advertising. Now, this is interesting because I actually thought that this show was broke away from... Oh, The Hill still has the show, but the original hosts, Sagar and Crystal, broke away. So here's they my broke away. Where'd my, they go? Yeah, they have uh, it's what is it called? Talking points or not with the hill though? No, okay. and they have a podcast. So so I no longer 
follow The Rising because I'm actually a fan of the Sagar Crystal show and occasionally listen to the podcast. Well, I now th- The Rising is Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie Soav. Suave. Suave. Is that really Suave, how you pronounce it? Arico. Yes, it is Robbie Suave. And I know uh, Robbie Suave. And I have no idea where the hell well, let me how tell the you hell something. produces this thing. It is a product of Nexstar Communications because The Hill is owned by Nexstar Communications. So they are my corporate cousins. I, as a news nation, as the political editor of News Nation, these are my corporate cousins over there. And Bob Cusack, who runs the show over at the Hill, you'll see him on News Nation. You might see me on Rising. The I will, let me. I'll put it. To, I'll put it to you this way. What's the gentleman's name? Brian. Brian. Get ready for more synergy, my friend. Brace yourself for additional synergies coming down the pike. Yeah, no idea about the finances of it. Well, it's owned. I mean, Nextar bought the hill, got that with it. That's part of it. Okay. And in the future, I think you're going to see, I'm hinting broadly here, in the future you're going to see more content crossing over between News Nation and the hill. All right, and the final question, have you Get ever ready. talked about the Showtime documentary, The Lincoln Project? I would love to hear your take on it. Brian, we are going to put a review, the Washington Free Beacon's review of this awful documentary in, Five in parts. the show notes. Yes, it's incredible, and we have we had published a wonderful review in November at The Beacon. Five and we'll put that there. Parts. That captures my thoughts. Is it roasting them? No, no, it's like them. It's a flattering yeah. documentary? Yeah. Is the Lincoln Project the greatest piece of political malpractice it's, um, it's amazing. of recent years? Quite possibly. And I will also say Steve Schmidt is a deeply troubled person. He is obviously a deeply troubled person. And the, they had problems with sexual harassment claims. and They had all this stuff. Five-part favorable documentary about what they're doing. It's, These are people who said that in order for Donald Trump's stain to be removed from the Republican Party, Susan Collins needed to lose her Senate contest in Maine because she had voted for Brett Kavanaugh. Now, let me tell you, the Lincoln Project, I will not say it's grifting because I believe that these people probably not only are sincere, but also believe that they deserve to be massively remunerated for generational their inc- wealth, baby. Yeah, for their incredible wisdom and gifts. But they're terrible at what they do. And they have harmed the very objectives that they said they meant to serve. They're speaking of messianic, their messianic approach to what they were going to do with the Republican Party. It was a disaster and they failed at what they're doing. All right. You've pivoted from the doc to the to the subject of the doc. But so we refer why would you, I Brian, watch, to the but, review. But why would I watch a fight like unless it was and I wouldn't even watch that because who cares? You, you'd read the review. I would just read. The you review. would read the review. Plug away. All right. That was the that, that, that was the name of the show, yes. the, the fake show that John Lovitz used to host on Saturday Night Live. It was called Plug Away. Plug Away. That brings us to your favorite time of the week, Chris. When I'm forced to say something nice, but but lead me by example. You, as a lady, might not. How do you feel about Hemingway as a writer? You know, I've never really read, like, dug into Hemingway. Really. No. Oh, the short stories are the best. The I love uh, Nabokov is great and similar in certain ways. Hemingway to me writes like the best of the Russians, but with the clear, punchy sentences that I really enjoy. But I also know that 
a lot of women find him to be a misogynistic jerk who closed his time on earth by leaving a mess for his wife to clean up, his fourth or fifth wife to clean up after he blew his brains out uh, in their home. And I understand that there's a lot of complaints around Hemingway, but his writing style is amazing to me, and I love it. And I, by the way, recommend to him, to you, the collection of short stories, particularly the Up in Michigan books. The, the two novels of his that are great are, of course, The Old Man in the Sea at the end, but also his first, The Sun Also Rises, are, are monuments of Western literature. The stuff in between is a little flabby and too many descriptions of the small of Pilar's back in For Whom the Bell Tolls and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, this is a great piece in the Wall Street Journal from John J. Miller about the Kansas City Star's style guide. And the Kansas City Star remains one of America's best newspapers. The Kansas City Star's style guide and how Ernest Hemingway learned to be a writer. And one of the Star's pronouncement, here's Miller, one of the Star's pronouncements sounds like a forerunner of the AP's recent dictum, say, crippled boy, not a cripple. Perhaps, as the King James Bible put it in Ecclesiastes, there is really no new thing under the sun, and editors will always have to make judgment calls. Just before he quit, the star Hemingway wrote a letter to his father, quote, I have had a lot of valuable experience and have done some good work and have hit it pretty blame hard. A tough lesson, he added, was, quote, remembering to use good style, perfect style, in fact. Do I think that working for, do I think good editing is important? Yes. Do I think newspaper, the newspaper style of writing is the best way to be communicated? Yes. And do I think that Hemingway made it beautiful? Yes. Mine is the latest news out of CNN, and for once, it's in my favorites, ah. which is that Chris Licht over there is trying to woo Charles Barkley to primetime. And I think that would actually that be a, wonderful that to That is a watch. non-terrible idea. That okay? is not that terrible at all. That came from Dylan Byers over at Puck, and that is inspired. He's I hilarious. He's amazing. And if Shaq will come on, then it will be everything. He, yes, Totally agree. I love those two, and I love I love basketball. So. And Barkley's pretty conservative, but he is he's definitely great. he's definitely a right of center individual. He is great. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts dot com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts dot com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Just search for Wretches. 